Many Latin American and Caribbean migrants call it their best hope for a better life in the U.S. But with all that promise has also come problems they say need to be fixed. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup. I'm your host, Tim Paget. A year ago this week, the Biden administration launched a humanitarian parole for migrants escaping crisis and dictatorship in Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. It's brought a quarter million people to the U.S., especially South Florida. But has it alleviated the crush at the U.S. southern border? In the next hour, my WLRN colleagues and I will discuss our new series, Waiting for America, examining the successes and failures of President Biden's key immigration policy. That's coming up after the news. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. Bienvenidos, bienveni, bienvindo. A year ago this week, the Biden administration told Venezuelans they could apply for a humanitarian migrant parole. It would let them come to the U.S. for two years if they had a sponsor here who could support them, and it would also let them work here. They could avoid the dangerous overland trek to the U.S. southern border, and that, theoretically, would then help ease the migrant crisis at that border, an emergency that's been weighing on President Biden's approval ratings. Venezuelans are dealing with the worst humanitarian crisis in modern South American history and an oppressive authoritarian regime, so they jumped at the chance to receive El Parol de Biden. In January, the program brought in Cubans, Haitians, and Nicaraguans hoping to escape their own crises. Since then, a total of 30,000 migrants per month have received the parole. A great many have come to South Florida. But has it met its aim of keeping migrants away from the overwhelmed U.S. border? What do you feel are the successes and failures of the Biden parole? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also tweet us at WLRN. Joining me here in the studio are my colleagues Danny Rivero, Veronica Saragovia, and Wilkin Brutus. The four of us contributed reports to our WLRN series, Waiting for America. All this week, we examined the promise and problems of this key Biden administration immigration policy, in large part by hearing from the migrants taking part in it. Welcome to all three of you, and thanks for being here, guys. Thanks Thanks for having us. A program note, we're wrapping up our series this week with a special live-streamed program in Spanish. Join us for a live conversation about the impact and future of the Biden Parole Program on Facebook and YouTube after the South Florida Roundup today. Search at WLRN on Facebook and YouTube for details. So... Let's start with precisely the word we used to name this series, waiting. And we did so because it's a word we so often heard from our sources. I mean, on the one hand, they enthusiastically praise this humanitarian parole as what many of them call their best hope for escaping their economic and political tragedies back in Latin America. But on the other hand, just about all of them stressed that the Biden administration significantly underestimated the demand for the parole. They point to the fact that as the as of the end of this month, we've had almost 270,000 migrants approved for the parole. And to be fair to the Biden administration, that is consistent with the 30,000 approvals per month target that was set. But many point out that's a little more than a tenth of the actual number of migrants who've applied 
for the parole, which means the process has resulted in a lot of stressful, there's that word again, waiting for parole applicants, including those who are among the first to sign up. Danny, let me start with you. Do you think the Biden administration anticipated this problem? I think they must have. Um, the amount of people arriving to the southern border has been a pervasive issue politically for, for, for President Biden. And this was when it was conceived an attempt to essentially take a crack at it, to, yeah. to have some somewhat of an impact on it. But with the 30,000 per year number that it that it aimed to to address to, to give another avenue for if you look at the number of people arriving on the southern border that's a small chunk of it i mean the the demand yeah. was never going to be equal to the supply of these of these humanitarian parole visas that are that are being issued so it it, it was an attempt but you know if they actually tried to open up the amount of uh opportunity for people to come to match the the, the supply the amount of people yeah. that want to leave their countries that would have been a political problem of, of a different sort in the u.s so. well and, and veronica for example in the nicaraguan community one of the big problems has been a lack of sponsors right. there have been so many nicaraguans who want to take advantage of this program and the nicaraguan community here for example is not as large as as the haitian and and cuban communities where you have a large pool of sponsors um, so is, in, in, in communities like the Nicaraguan community, uh, is are they also thinking, wow, the Biden administration maybe underestimated how many people were going to want to go for this? Yeah. And in my reporting, there's a mix of feelings like they appreciate that there's this other avenue for Nicaraguans to be able to apply and try to get out of the harms that they might face in Nicaragua um, under President Daniel Ortega. But um, the sponsorship requirements are such that you have to have a certain level of income um, you, and you have to be here legally. And so it limits a lot of people. And so there are people waiting yeah. in Nicaragua who have been approved, but they need to and I, and I want to get to that sponsorship problem a little later. Wilkin, I mean, Haitians is the nationality that has been um, uh, producing the largest number of, of people receiving this parole. I mean, um, more than any of the other three nationalities. Um, but yet I get the feeling that there are even more, many more Haitians who wish they could uh, ha have received it by now. Do you get the sense as well in the Haitian community that uh, the Biden administration just really didn't anticipate the, the flood of people who are going to you know, want to take advantage of this parole? Oh, absolutely. Uh, a lot of Haitian advocates have stressed that very point is that um, there are issues with, within Haiti in terms of trying to get passports, for example. Uh, there are a lot of passport scams. Right. We'll, we'll get to that conversation. Yeah. Um, but advocates have always stressed the fact that there are some lingering issues prior to the hasty um, implementation of the program that could have been solved prior to it being implemented. implemented. That, that Yeah, and definitely, that's a great point that we want, we want to get to. Another of our WLRN colleagues, afternoon anchor Catalina Garcia, has personally been dealing with the parole application process on behalf of her Cuban relatives. They recently left Cuba and applied for the parole while waiting in Ecuador. Garcia spoke with South Florida Roundup producer Helen Acevedo about the experience. Well, my brother is a sponsor. My brother's an immigration attorney, so he seemed like the 
the one who would know what to do and how to get this done quicker. Um, he he sponsored them, and it, but I took over quickly thereafter because that's just what I do. <laughs> I take over. And it was just taking too long. It was just taking so long. And uh, as a sponsor, I felt frustrated, honestly. I believed that they would get here. I mean, I never had a doubt for some reason, I, but I did know it was going to take longer than what everyone expected just because of the amount of people who you would hear that were waiting, you know, it wasn't one or two, it was thousands of people. I listened to different um, TV shows, I listened to different uh, people who specialize in this area, and I realized that it's not, you know, as few people as we might have thought in the beginning. It's actually an overwhelming amount of people who were being sponsored, and I think that's my, that might be what would have happened, because I just think they didn't have the personnel to handle the amount of influx of applications. That's my personal belief, and, and it was frustrating, especially because I knew they were desperate. And no matter how much I told them, you know, wait, just wait, be patient. I knew that they tried to be, but they couldn't be because they are in such a desperate, desperate place. And I speak of my family, but I, I have been to Cuba many times and to other countries like Nicaragua. And I know that this desperation is something that that is felt in every country, in every country that has the opportunity um, for sponsorship. When we first heard of the news, you know, you hear all kinds of stories. Oh, 48 hour, hours later, they're here. You know, the next day they're here. So they packed their bags and they were ready to go. And uh, days turned into weeks, weeks turned into months. And here we were eight months later and nothing. I mean, I would call weekly trying to find out what's going on. Same answer they gave everybody. You know, it's in process, it's in process. So I decided to contact my local congressman. And pretty much sent them like a package of what's going on. I sent them uh, news clippings about what the situation in Ecuador. My, my cousin is a surgeon. He's a doctor. Surgeons were being kidnapped. I mean, hospitals were being bombed. So I sent them that information. I sent him all the degrees. I, he, I had him write a personal letter. And I just did everything that I could possibly think of, you know, to get it expedited. And I can't say that it happened or it worked. But I can tell you that two weeks later, they were here. We should point out that Catalina contacted the offices of Congresswoman Maria Elvira Salazar and Senator Marco Rubio, Rubio excuse me, for, for help with her case. Danny, aside from the backlog of applications, another big issue, obviously, is the what, backlog for work permits. Because once the parolee arrives in the United States, they are eligible then to receive employment authorization. But we kept hearing in our reporting, and particularly in your report, that those work permits uh, are, are coming in perhaps not as expedited a fashion as the, the, the parole recipients would, 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 would want. Um, how big an issue do you see that being? Right. It is, it is an issue. And, you know, in, in some ways it speaks to the the heart of this program, what was at the heart of it. Um, this overall was an effort to let people come to the U.S., but also take some of the burden from taxpayers off um, to, to let people stand on their own few feet. So when this program was announced, not only did you have to find a sponsor who would, who would be able to vouch for you economically, um, you would have the opportunity to work. And the, the point is you can start to work and develop your own life and you're not relying on on benefits and whatnot. But what's right. happened is the the average wait time, according to the USCIS, is about four months. And, you know, you can look up the federal data. There's over 400,000 people. And this includes other people from that came here from other programs. Mm -hmm. But there's over 400,000 people that are eligible, that are waiting for six months or more to get these work permits. So 
you have people that came waiting, expecting to be able to work, to provide for themselves, to help their sponsors out a little bit because people sign papers saying, yes, I will support this, but the sponsor is also expecting a little bit of help too. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it is a real issue. The federal government says they're, they're working on it. They're trying to advance it. And it's also somewhat on their level of staffing problem because a lot of people mm -hmm. get waivers to not pay fees that are necessary. But these programs to process the paperwork yeah. are generate, they're funded through fees. So when people don't have to pay, there's less staff. So it's mm -hmm. kind of a... It is a personnel issue we it, keep yeah. hearing from, from, from all of the immigration attorneys we've talked to. I'm Tim Paget. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. My WLRN colleagues and I are discussing our series that aired this week, Waiting for America, about President Biden's humanitarian parole for migrants one year later. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Veronica, I want to go back to the issue that you were alluding to earlier about the difficulty in communities like the Nicaraguan community of, of providing or, or, or generating enough sponsors to uh, help bring in all of the people from a country like Nicaragua that want to take advantage of this parole program. Right, and uh, one one uh, one of the issues that the volunteers in my story mentioned is also that if you find, so because of the, the Nicaraguan diaspora here might not have the means to sponsor someone, if you try to find anyone else in the U.S., they need to know who they're sponsoring. So she goes through this vetting process. Uh, her name is Muriel Sainz in Texas and right. uh, provides all of the information she can so that people feel more comfortable and she has a list and she reaches out to all these nonprofits to see if anyone in the U.S. could do it because you need to uh, earn 125 percent of the federal poverty line or 100 percent if you're in the armed forces and it's just very difficult that like, for instance a retired person who maybe has the, the means to sponsor someone cannot sponsor because they don't have that active income coming in. Yeah so so that uh, that that helps deplete perhaps the pool right of, of sponsors for um Wilkin, another issue, access to passports. A person in any of these four countries has to have a passport from that country to be eligible to apply. That's not always easy, particularly in the case of Nicaraguans and Haitians. Nicaraguans, because we have a dictator there in Daniel Ortega, uh, who is uh, sabotaging, in many cases, people's ability to access passports, just to be spiteful, because he's a dictator. And then in Haiti, it's, it's more of an in infrastructural problem in terms of producing passports, help, and, and also fraud, as you reported this oh, week. Absolutely. What, what's the big problem there? Yeah, I, I think there is some synergy in terms of like the political instability aspect of it, because um, Haiti has been politically in, unstable since the wake of the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse. Right. Um, and so to your point about that infrastructure, it, it has made it completely difficult to acquire Haitian passports in order to get in, into the program. In fact, Haitians in Haiti typically pay around 200 bucks to get a passport. Mm -hmm. Now they have to pay racketeers north of a thousand dollars in order to get a passport and because because they the racketeers know that the demand right now for passports is so high oh absolutely and let's be clear the racketeers are individuals who have one foot in to the government and one foot out uh -huh. and so when you have access to that information you're able to sort of gout you know price gouge in order to get more money more access to people who are desperate to leave the current conditions in Haiti and also what's what's quite um, difficult to really get a hold of this is that 
the racketeers typically withhold documents yeah. so that they could get more money from the Haitian applicants. Bad situation. You're right. In just the couple of minutes we have left, I wanted to bring up with all of you then, you know, what, what is the result of, of, of a lot of these problems, particularly the backlog regarding applications? I mean, let, let's go back to the real uh, impetus of this program was to reduce the number of unlawful crossings by migrants at the U.S. southern border. And early on, it looked like this per parole program was having that effect. Uh, in, in Between May and July, for example, uh, the U.S. government was reporting encounters with unlawful lawful crossings at the border was down about 40%. But because you've got so many applicants waiting so long for their, uh, for their approval for their applications, a lot of them lose patience. This was particularly the message in the Venezuelan community. And that has resulted in migrants like Venezuelans simply giving up and then taking off on foot again, returning to the Darien jungle, for example, a very treacherous place for them to be crossing through to get to the United States. Um, and I want, I'm, I'm just wondering if you guys also wonder, as I do, has that then ended up undermining the original intent of the parole, which was to reduce the stress on the U.S.? If that waiting is causing more people to just give up on the application process and just start doing what this program was meant to keep them from doing, <laughs> right. Danny? Yeah, yeah, if I can jump in there. I mean, I think it's probably too early, I think, to, to make that kind of judgment. I mean, when you look at the numbers um, for Cubans in, in particular. Mm -hmm. So in December of 2022, the month before this went into effect, there were f more than 44,000 Cubans arriving at the at the southern border. Right. Right. The next month, as this went into effect, that dropped to 11,000. Right. Mm -hmm. And it, 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 it continued to go down. Now it's slowly starting to creep back up. So you know, but between July and August, which is the latest numbers we have, we see a pretty sharp uptick, but it's still much lower than it was. Right. So, but it, however, so it, yeah. So How, if it keeps going up, we might have something to talk about. But for now, it's still pretty low. Again, I go back to the Venezuelan example, I think is the biggest thing people are pointing to. Um, Venezuelans in recent months have have been the nationality with the most people crossing the Darien jungle uh, in, in, in recent months, as I said, and that, that's a big concern here. We're going to take a break here. I'm speaking with my WLRN colleagues, Danny Rivero, Veronica Saragovia, and Wilkem Brutus about our immigration series, Waiting for America. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm here with my WLRN news colleagues, Danny Rivero, Veronica Saragovia, and Wilkin Brutus. And we're talking about our series that aired all this week, Waiting for America. It examines the promise and problems of the Biden administration's humanitarian parole for migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela one year after it was launched. What are your thoughts about the parole program that's brought so many new migrants to South Florida? Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Now, in the previous segment, guys, we discussed some of the main issues of the parole program that keep coming up a year later, successes as well as failures. But as I mentioned in the introduction to the show, this series was also about the migrants and their sponsors here who've been dealing most directly with those issues. 
So I wanted now to talk a little more about the human faces of this immigration policy. And just a programming note, we're wrapping up our series this week with a special live streamed program in Spanish. Join us for a live conversation about the impact and future of the Biden parole program on Facebook and YouTube after the South Florida Roundup. Search at WLRN on Facebook and YouTube for details. So again, uh, Danny, as I said, I want I want to take a look now, sort of step back and look at the human face of of this uh, this policy. And you had a report that aired uh, t airing today, actually, on WLRN about a Cuban migrant who took uh, availed himself of this uh, parole named Amaury Pacheco and his family. What was so special about profiling them? Right. Uh, um, Amaury Pacheco has been a Cuban artist and poet for several decades kind of at the forefront of the independent art scene in Cuba. He was a co-founder of the Movimiento San Isidro, which in many ways helped spark the protests that happened in July 11th of 2021. Right. Um, so he's been a pretty central figure. And his wife came to the United States two years ago to get medical treatment with two of their kids. And they've been here and they were trying to figure out for a long time how they could actually re reunite because his, his wife right. couldn't go back. She couldn't get medical treatment she needed in, in Cuba. But they, but she and the kids were here on tourist visas, they were, right? They, yeah. they were on tourist visas and they, right. they overstayed them. They're trying to settle that and figure it out now. Yeah. But they, they, they wanted the family to reunite. So when the announcement came out that this program was going to be available for Cubans, it was a huge relief for the family. They said, oh my God, there's there's a way that we can actually reunite. You know, a Maori and their other kids that stayed back in Cuba, they don't have to go through the Darien Gap. They right. don't they don't have to go to Mexico. They could do it. Mm -hmm. So they applied. It was a seven-month wait. And in late August, they, they got the paperwork and they were able to come to the U.S. They, they have a sponsor. They are now living in a house in Brownsville. They have Brownsville, a right. yeah, they have a couple months rent paid for, it. and now mm -hmm. they're really just trying to figure out. Okay, now we're back together for the most part. One of their sons got stuck behind in Cuba. He's in he's in jail, mm -hmm. um, but they're trying to figure out how to restart their lives, and it's really, you know, a, a heartwarming thing to see because it is the heart and soul of this program. And, and several people I talked to said, this is not supposed to be a family reunification program, but it is. Yeah. You know, there is people that are very excited to be here, learning the new language, learning a new culture, and they want to do well. They want to do for good things for themselves here and for their friends and family that are still back on the island. Yeah. And what, what struck me about your report that, uh, today uh, is, is that it, it, it harkened back in some ways to the report of mine in this series that aired on Monday, which also had a, has an overtone of family reunification uh, anxiety to it. Um, the, the, the woman I interviewed, um, Meliana Bruguera, is from Venezuela, and she was one of the first to apply for this humanitarian parole back in, I think, November of last year. And she had to wait until April to get a response on her application. And she was one of the people who gave us that word waiting. You know, I think her, mm -hmm. her quote was the waiting hurts. And she said the waiting hurts not so much in her, because of her case, but because of the case of her husband, who she was only able to find a sponsor here who could support her and her two kids, but could not did not have enough income to support also her husband who would be coming. He f 
finally was able to find a sponsor in May, and he is still waiting for an answer. So they're here still waiting for her husband and the kid's father to come, and, and that, that's a lot of a, a stress, uh, the kind, same kind of stress that I think you were describing uh, today uh, in, in your report on Amari Pacheco and his Cuban family. Right. I mean, the, the Iris Ruiz, the, the you know, Amari's wife, she told me when she got the news, she, she used a phrase that really haunted me in some kind of way. She's like, she said, it's like somebody gives you an elephant right. as a gift, but then you have to carry the elephant home with you. Yeah. It's like, it's a present, but it's a burden. And mm -hmm. the waiting and the uncertainty, if you're going to be one of the ones that are selected, one of the lucky ones that win the lottery, essentially, that's the burden. But there's a lot of hope in it too. And we should we should also I, I should cut in here and, and also mention that um, the process, the application process, Department of Homeland Security has set up a process where half of the applications are selected chronologically, the other half are are processed randomly in in order, as they say, to make the distributive. Uh, aspect of, of of the parole fair. Um, do, do do you guys think that a lot of the mig migrants think that's a sensical approach? Uh, you know, what what what's been their 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 uh, opinions about that? In, in in the people I've interviewed, didn't get into that issue, um, but. I mean, some people that I spoke to were able to bring some of their relatives here, but they couldn't talk to me because it could jeopardize, as you mentioned, there's a lot of problems with espionage in, in Nicaragua, and they were fearful to bring people here. They didn't yeah. talk about the process itself, but they a lot more people from Nicaragua apply for asylum for all of this backlog issue. They can prove that they're suffering persecution or would suffer persecution if they remain there. So a lot more people here tend to apply for asylum. Mm -hmm. I'm Tim Padgett. You're listening to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. My WLRN colleagues and I are discussing our series that aired this week, Waiting for America, about President Biden's humanitarian parole for migrants one year later. Call us at 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576, or tweet us at WLRN. Uh, Veronica, um, I wanted to move since we're now just talking about Nicaraguans, I wanted to move to one of the people that you profiled in your report on this nationwide network of Nicaraguan volunteers who have been trying, you know, to fill the vacuum uh, of, of, of sponsors, for example, to help Nicaraguans take advantage. Uh, his name's Douglas Rossman, right? Uh, tell, right. tell us tell us more about him and, and what he so he was working with. on cruise ships in Nicaragua and he came here in 2021 um, and got off the ship and he, when he was going to go back to Nicaragua he got denied entry and he thinks it's because he was working with a candidate an opposition person to Daniel Ortega and so then he's applied for asylum but in the meantime he helps for people he gets hundreds he showed me his whatsapp account helping people and one of the people the groups that he helps are Miskito Indian community from Nicaragua. They're on the Caribbean northeast coast of Nicaragua, and um, they've been displaced for logging and mining, and they don't speak Spanish and they don't speak English, so that's been a particular challenge. But he does what he can to help people. He'll come in from Everglades City on the west coast of Florida to take people to their appointments, accompany them here at the Miami Immigration Court or to immigration lawyers and um, he's one of the optimists who thinks he just needs to help help as much as he can because people really need that assistance. No, that, that he was he's an impressive guy. Yeah. In, 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 in if, if, I, 
if I can just jump in there. I mean, what what Veronica's describing and what she cover what she covered very beautifully in that story is, <laughs> um, you know, there's not a lot of organizations that do this kind of work. Yeah, and, and as and, opposed to years past. Yeah, yeah, and in the past, and the decades past, and the the waves of this magnitude past, there were a lot of. Uh, organizations that did this kind of work but now it's kind of haphazard people are just figuring it out which is strange i just wanted to point it out and, yeah. and yeah. also and also mm -hmm. short of of staff yeah so for the organizations particularly within haitian uh within the haitian community uh a staff shortage shortage have also you know made it things made things quite difficult yeah. right we have gloria on the line from miami she wants to speak to the role of congress in causing as she says this immigration crisis gloria welcome to the south florida roundup Thank you so much. I really appreciate you all being proactive and having this conversation that uh, creates awareness and education. Um, as much as I think we all appreciate the efforts that the president has made in creating this program, fundamentally, we are a democracy and we have separation of powers. And there is only so much that he can do from the executive branch. And I don't hear enough people acknowledging, number one, that there's a role here for Congress to do their job. Right. And as much as our delegation from Miami-Dade sees this, lives it, has such connection to it, I don't see Carlos Jimenez or Maria Elvira Salazar, even though she's sponsored an act, um, it right. hasn't made any progress. Right. So I'm glad you pointed the out. The in Congress is really right. not helping. Congresswoman El 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 Maria Elvira Salazar has proposed legislation that would that would try to get in. The, but I should point out, uh, going back to that issue of the backlog of applications, uh, the, and a lot of people are saying, look, 30,000 uh, a month approvals is just not enough, given the demand. Department of Homeland Security has said, well, look, if you want to expand it, we've got to get, we have to have more resources, and Congress has to be the one to step up uh, to, to provide us those resources. You have to cut the check. Exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, I want to now move to, to Wilkin, um, and I want to, uh, we want to bring in here a conversation that you had with your mother, uh, Paulette Francois, who's originally from Jeremy, Haiti, now lives in uh, Lake Worth Beach, and you had a great conversation with her uh, uh, about her uh, involvement in this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, earlier, we all talked about family reunific re reunification, how this is, it, it feels like that. Families trying to reunite with families here in the States. And my mother has always been open about her refugee experience. Well, let's hear from her now. Mom, in the early 80s, you were a refugee in a boat arriving in Miami from Haiti. You eventually helped a dozen relatives mm -hmm come here legally from your small town of Jeremy. Do you feel a sense of burden or responsibility to help relatives in Haiti? Yes, I didn't really feel it's a burden because I do it with love, but I, I feel like it's a big responsibility because when you're here, you have a family here to take care and you have a family in Haiti. It's a double, it's like you live in a double life because the same way you, you think for your family here, but you have this sympathy inside of you. you. You just try your best to support them. You do it with joy, you know, so they can live a happy life. You have a few relatives who arrived here in Palm Beach County through the Biden parole program. Did they have difficulty getting a Haitian passport to get accepted into the program? Yes, because the passport takes a lot of money, you know? But you can just go to the office and get a passport done for 
you know, the, the amount that they're supposed to do it for you. Because it's not easy to get a passport, you have to pay way more money. So that way, they, you know, whoever the person who make the passport for you, they cannot share the money, you know, together because they're, they're the one who go beyond to get to, to make sure you get the passport. So the, the, the amount you pay for it is that tripled than what's supposed to pay for a regular passport. Do, did they describe how they even find a racketeer? Well, they know, they, they know somebody. Somebody knows somebody that knows somebody. <laughs> you know, it's like let's say everybody knows somebody that knows somebody. And so they've arrived here in Palm Beach County. How difficult is it for them to adjust here? Is it hard for them to find work, for example? But right now, they they're not they cannot find work yet because they're waiting they're waiting for the actual paper, you know. But after they get the paper, I want them to go like to go to school and learn English first, and then while they're in school, they can you know look for a job, you know. But you you need English so they to do whatever you have to do in the United States. There's obviously financial difficulties and challenges when you're hosting new people uh, but there's room for joy uh, how does it feel to be reconnected with relatives after they've finally settled in <laughs> it's always a pleasure to have family you know so when they first came I welcome I welcome them which we all welcome them my children and I welcome them and my sister their mom was so overjoyed that they're with me because she feels safe. It was the dream to come live with auntie, you know? But my sister, very happy that they're here with me. And I'm very happy they're here because, because of the kidnapping and all that's going on in Haiti. The safety was the, the, my first priority. Whatever I have to pinch to help them with, I'm gonna pinch to help, to help them, you know? Because if I was in my sister position, I would want her to try to help me save my to put my kids, my children to safety. That was WLRN's Wilkin Brutus talking with his mom, Paulette Francois of Lake Worth Beach, about her experience as a sponsor for Haitian migrants signing up for the Biden administration's humanitarian parole. We're going to take another break here. I'm speaking with my WLRN colleagues Danny Rivero, Veronica Saragovia, and Wilkin Brutus about our immigration series, Waiting for America. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tim Paget. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm here with my WLRN news colleagues, Danny Rivero, Veronica Saragovia, and Wilkin Brutus. And we're talking about our series that aired all this week, Waiting for America. It examines the promise and problems of the Biden administration's humanitarian parole for migrants from Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela, one year after it was launched. I want to hear some final thoughts from you guys based on your reporting for the series about what people seem to think is working when it comes to this program and what needs to be fixed. Now, of course, we need to remember that any future fixes of the humanitarian parole depend on whether the courts let the program 
continue. Attorneys general for more than 20 Republican-led states have filed suit to stop the program. They call the policy an unlawful executive action on President Biden's part that stands to exacerbate the U.S.'s immigration crisis. The Biden administration argues, of course, that it's meant precisely to alleviate the border crisis. Either way, a federal judge in Texas has been hearing arguments in the case and is expected to make a ruling sometime soon. But let's say the judge decides to let the humanitarian parole continue. Um, I'll get the ball rolling here by suggesting that if this program is going to be successful in the long run, it may have to be expanded and restructured. Um, Wilkin, what are your thoughts on on that? Yeah, um, in, in terms of restructuring the actual Biden program? Yeah. I, I can only speak to how Haitian advocates and immigration attorneys have responded to the way in which passport scams in Haiti has impacted how Haitians mm-hmm. are trying to get into the program. Now, well, given that Haitians are the largest number sure. of people receiving, I think I think yeah, their insights are very important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, advocates and immigration attorneys have spoken with the Department of Homeland Security and have tried to essentially come up with some ideas to alleviate some of the backlog. Yeah. Um, waiving the passport requirement right. is, is one example, like the Nicaraguans, but mm-hmm. that to no right. avail. The Nicaraguans community leaders here have asked for that as well. Yeah. Right. And, and so I spoke to longtime immigration attorney uh, Clorel Syriac, who works with asylum-seeking immigrants, um, and he suggested Haitians not go through racketeers, <laughs> point period, <Right. laughs> and, and, and to be patient and to go through regular channels. Um, but he recognizes that even official avenues within Haiti are suffering through major backlogs there. Yeah. Um, and so there isn't really a prescriptive solution to what's ailing some of the Haitian applicants uh, who are trying to get into this program other than saying, hey, be aware of the scams, be aware of the racketeers who are trying to profit off your your, your disparity, you, you know, um, and so, yeah. Yeah. Danny, I, I know you've got some observations regarding recommendations to fix the work permit process problem, no? Right. I mean, w- one obvious solution to this is political. I mean, there's politics is inescapable in all this. Um, and the reason I say that is because this humanitarian parole program was modeled after programs that were started for Afghans and Ukrainians, Ukrainians right. after the you know the, the collapse of the of the regime in right. in um, in Afghanistan and the invasion by Putin. So in those two cases, Congress passed actual laws, which they very rarely do, is pass laws that included specific provisions about. Yes, we're going to admit these people into our country. When they come in here, they can automatically work. They don't have to wait for some kind of paperwork that's submitted to a backlog. They can automatically work for at least three months mm-hmm. while they are, their papers get in order and whatnot. In this program, they're not they're not able to do that. And DHS says, well, it's because Congress didn't pass a law. Congress needs to pass a law. So so they say that their their hands are essentially tied because they can't go beyond what the law allows and and you know to what we were talking about with the the court case in texas states are already fighting this in its current form so they say if we go even further and just let people come here and automatically work without a specific law we can't do it that's a political problem the other the other thing is um on this case the the ombudsman for for uscis which is kind of an internal watchdog 
made the suggestion in a in a report he issued a couple months ago. Right. Simplify the paperwork. Integrate. Yeah, integrate. Yeah. Because because if you apply, you have to do one set of paperwork, and then you get here, then you get other paperwork in order, then you apply for the work permit. The suggestion is make all the paperwork one set of paperwork, so you don't have to go through everything yeah. two times and deal with backlogs. It's just one and done. Yep. That that is something that USCIS probably could do. Mm-hmm. We haven't heard specifics on where that is, though. And Veronica, what about regarding the problem with getting enough sponsors? What are some of the recommendations out there in terms of alleviating that problem? Certainly taking out that income requirement um, and also maybe, yeah, like streamlining it because there are people who are trying to find a place for them to live, others who are getting um, the, the sponsorship underway. So it's just very haphazard. Everybody's working on something else. And they also mentioned to me that once you come here and you have two years here, then what happens? So it also seems like it's very short-sighted. And then what, are they going to stay illegally here? And I'm glad you brought that up because just to end here, we should also point out that there's a big potential issue waiting for this program down the line. Namely, what does the U.S. do with these hundreds of thousands of parole recipients once their two-year period ends here? I mean, if Venezuela is still suffering the worst humanitarian crisis in modern South American history by then, for example, do we put the Venezuela and parolees on a plane back home. Uh, that's just again one yeah. of the yeah. one of the other uh, uh, big problems that could be waiting around the corner here. And it adds extra pressure to the immigrant yeah. service organizations that exactly. are trying to help. WLN reporters Danny Rivero, Veronica Saragovia, and Wilkin Brutus all contributed to our series that aired all this week called "Waiting for America." Many thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you, you. Tim. Merci beaucoup. Yeah, de rien. You can listen to and read the series at WLRN.org slash waiting. You'll also find there information and support resources concerning the Biden administration's humanitarian parole program for migrants. We're wrapping up our series this week with a special live streamed program in Spanish. Join us for a live conversation about the impact and future of the Biden parole program on Facebook and YouTube after the South Florida Roundup. Search at WLRN on Facebook and YouTube for details. Finally on the Roundup, earlier in the program, we talked about migrants making the dangerous trip through the Darien jungle between Colombia and Panama on their way to the U.S. southern border. Authorities say most of the migrants passing through the Darien right now are Venezuelan, despite the fact that the Biden administration's humanitarian parole program was supposed to reduce the number of Venezuelans taking that route. WLRN education reporter Kate Payne spent some time with one of those Venezuelan migrant families and their teenage son, who are now here in Miami after enduring the Darien. It's been almost two years since Wiston left his home in Maracay, Venezuela, and he says he misses everything. Wiston is 13 his curly black hair trimmed into a smooth fade. He's in eighth grade and trying to play it cool in the way that teenagers do, but he's still so young. We're not using his family's full names because of their sensitive immigration status. Weston says he loved to spend his days in the park by his house in Venezuela, playing soccer with his friends. These days, Wiston says, he spends a lot of his time inside, watching videos and studying. 
When I first arrived to this apartment that he and his parents share with a few other families, he'd just finished working out and doing push-ups. We sat at a little table in the hallway where his mom, Giuliani, does manicures. Wiestun says the situation in Venezuela left his family no choice. They had to leave. Wiestun and his parents are among the millions of Venezuelans who have left their country behind, and they took the hard way. In record numbers, Venezuelans are making the dangerous and sometimes deadly trek through Central America to reach the U.S.-Mexico border on foot. Giuliani says the journey took them three months. They hiked through the Darien Gap, a treacherous jungle stretching between Colombia and Panama. It's considered one of the world's most dangerous routes for migrants. It's been called a green hell. Wiestone's dad, Wiestone Sr., showed me a video of them there. Someone they're with is trying to keep their spirits up, saying, it's hard, but we can do it. For a while, the kids handled it well, Giuliani says, treating it like a summer camp. But they couldn't hide the stark realities of this muddy, roadless wilderness. Giuliani says all her toenails fell off. She says she didn't want them to go through this, especially her son. But she says they had to. Criminal gangs prey on migrants along the journey. Wiestone's dad says they saw dead bodies in the jungle and met women who had been raped. It was incredibly difficult. They had no choice but to keep walking. As they made it into Central America, there were houses where migrants could get help, organizations that gave them food as their supplies ran out. But some nights, she says, they slept in the street and under bridges. In Mexico, they slipped onto a freight train known as the Beast. Wiestone Sr. and other men rode on top of the train car, with women and kids inside. In a video he took, trees whipped by as they rattled across the countryside. The family swam across the Rio Grande at 1.30 in the morning, they say, and told border officials they had relatives in South Florida. Once they got to Miami, Wiestone's mom says he saw a therapist for a few months and he would cry about everything he missed in Venezuela. Wiestone podía... says he doesn't think he needs therapy anymore. His mom says he doesn't want to remember. They're grateful for their new home, this apartment above a little bodega on a busy road off of US-1 in Miami. And which one is, is yours? Este aquí. Wiestone shares one bedroom with his mom, dad, and older sister, who joined them later. Other families live here as well, 11 people in all, with one kitchen and two bathrooms. They'd like to have their own place one day, but this is the only option they have for now. They say they're just scraping by, 
going to a church food pantry, and leaning on family members. Todavía me falta comprar. Todavía me faltan tres baños. Todavía me faltan cosas. Giuliani says they're working on applying for temporary protective status, or TPS, which the Biden administration recently expanded for Venezuelans. For about $500 a pop, she and her husband could apply for work permits. It's a welcome solution, but it won't happen overnight. The fee is too high for the young parents who say they can't afford the last three binders their son needs for school. Seeing Weeston walk the halls of Ponce de Leon Middle School in Coral Gables, you wouldn't necessarily know what he's been through, the things he's seen. On the day I visited, we got to sit in on Weeston's English for Speakers of Other Languages class. Yes, copy the question. We are working on the question right now, practicing the uh, articles. His teacher, Maritza Victory, says all of the students in this class are newcomers. It's part of the district's effort to carve out a space for these new immigrants to be around other kids with shared experiences. Right now, we have these few students, but they are coming every day. There were about 12 kids the day I visited, with plenty of seats for the new students that are expected to keep coming. Ms. Victory says Weston's English has improved a lot since he went to a special language camp for newcomers over the summer. Yes, he's more comfortable because he feels more confident. Now he helped the other students. He opened the binders and by the topic, he tried to translate to them. Oh, abre el libro. Ah, in Spanish, he said, no. You already know what to do. They need to learn, too. So you can help them, but in English, not in Spanish. Weston says he's been doing better in school after those sessions he had with a therapist. He's been able to step away from his past and think more about the future. He really wants to work on his English this year. So he'll be ready for high school in the fall and everything that will bring. I'm Kate Payne in Miami. WLN reporter Joshua Ceballos contributed to that report. That will do it for this special episode of the South Florida Roundup. WLRN's Waiting for America series was reported by the four of us, Tim Paget, Danny Rivero, Veronica Saragovia and Wilkem Brutus. It was edited by Jessica Bakeman and Sarah Mobley-Smith with help from Sergio Bustos and Matt Sanchez. Digital production by Katie Cohen and Alyssa Ramos. Radio production by Helen Acevedo and Polly Landis. Special thanks to Catalina Garcia and Paulette Francois. I'm Tim Paget. Have a great weekend and thanks for listening. Gracias, Messi, obrigado. WLRN Public Media.